Welcome. This is Felipe Jimenez, Assistant Professor of Law and Philosophy at the University of Southern California, and this is the Private Law Podcast. My guest today is Alexandra Lahav, Ella Nash-Peters Professor of Law at the University of Connecticut School of Law. Professor Lahav focuses her research on the civil justice system, tort law, and litigation. She is the author of the book In Praise of Litigation and of multiple articles and book chapters. Today, we will talk about her paper, Chancy Causation in Tort. Alexandra, welcome to the show. I'm really happy we'll get to talk about this really fascinating paper. Thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here. Great. Let's start with the basics. What is Chancy Causation? Uh, so Chancy Causation is the idea that causation in a particular case can be probabilistic. Um, so let me just give you an example because I think it helps um, to kind of focus the mind. Um, so imagine that there's a um, an herbicide that's alleged to cause cancer, um, but other things can cause cancer too. Um, and per perhaps we did a study that shows that there's a X percent increased incidence of cancer among people who use this herbicide or who have a certain level of exposure to this herbicide. That's chancy causation. It's the idea that we can capture a probability of something being the cause of something else, but it's not determinative. Great. So why, <clears throat> so I understand that this type of causation is kind of probabilistic as opposed to certain. And so why is this form of probabilistic causation a problem or, or an interesting issue for traditional tort doctrine? So I think, and the listeners can, you know, or you can differ with me on this, but I think traditional tort doctrine as it's conceived usually understands causation um, to be deterministic. Uh, and it it's structured around counterfactuals, so, so what's called but-for causation. If you weren't exposed to the herbicide, you wouldn't have gotten cancer. Um, But unfortunately, many things in many products, especially in the modern world, we can only understand the harm they cause probabilistically. We, we can't actually understand it as a, in a determinative way. Um, and this links into a pretty significant philosophical literature that questions um, deterministic causes as well as um, counterfactual causes um, in a more general way. But the reason we have a problem in torts is that um, we really are faced in the in the modern landscape with a lot of uh, situations in which there may be tort liability, but we don't know for we don't know in a deterministic way whether or not there was causation, and and so there's basically you might think of it as there's if you like to think this way there's billions of dollars at stake in these questions and, and thousands and thousands of people's compensation um, at stake in answering these causation questions. There's, um, I think, an interesting problem here in terms of how we understand causation in tort, right? So um, if you limit the causation question to questions about but-for causation or factual causation, it seems that Chancy uh, causation raises a problem, as you say. But what what does it what does it imply for 
the other aspect of causation toward which is proximate causation. What what is the relationship between this phenomenon of chancy causation and um, but for and proximate causation in in tort uh, adjudication? So. As I mentioned, the but for test is sort of the standard test for determining um, something that people call either factual cause or actual cause. And then um, there's a second part of the causation inquiry in tort, which is, as as you mentioned, proximate cause, um, and uh, which which has to do with the re- with a relatedness question. So one of the things that people recognize is that a causal chain can be quite long. Um, sometimes people use the example of, you know, a butterfly flaps its wings and there is a hurricane halfway around the world, right? And we may be able to draw some kind of causal chain, but we nevertheless would say, well, uh, it's not sufficiently close in space or time or some other measure for us to impose liability here. Um, and that's the proximate causal inquiry. So what, what proximate cause does is it asks kind of a policy question is this cause close enough to the effect that we want to impose liability or is it too far away in, by some measure? Unforeseeable is another way we think about it. Um, and that's quite recognized to be a policy question, of a, a question of line drawing with implications. Um, and a lot, a lot has been written on that question. Whereas factual cause, which is the thing that I write about in this paper, is really pretty considered pretty well settled and not that often discussed um, as a problematic uh, concept. And and my contention is that once we understand what probabilistic causation actually is and how it blows up the idea of a but-for test, we come to realize that we have the same kind of line drawing problems that we have in the proximate cause context in the actual cause context. That is that actual cause, at least in cases of chancy causation, involves the same kind of policy questions that proximate cause posits. Um, And some people have recognized this, so it's not that I'm the first person to ever point this out, um, but uh, deontological type scholars of tort and the restatement of torts and judges don't really recognize this. and, And it, I think creates a lot of problems for how we resolve real cases on the ground. So would it it be fair to say that in your view, in chancy causation cases, the distinction between but-for causation and proximate cause is kind of collapsed or that the factual causation question becomes as normative, as policy-oriented as the proximate causation question in ordinary tort adjudication? Yes, that's what I would say, is that in the, 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 the second way you framed it, that in these cases, the factual cause question, which I think people would really like to be non-normative, um, is actually a, a normative question and raises these the same kind of policy decisions um, that we that we recognize to be um, at, in play in the proximate causal question. And and so, a, a related point here is how you would compare the causation question when we when we treat it as a purely factual question, and how how that question looks when we treat it as a 
normative question that involves policy considerations. So what, you know, what kind of um, conceptual or um, inferential change does the move from a purely factual framing of the causation question to a policy or normative question um, framework generate? So how does it change decision-making to think about causation in these more normative terms when we're dealing with 10C causation? That's a that's a really great question. Um, let me try to get at it by uh, looking at a specific uh, conundrum that I've really struggled with, which is the the question of what role the burden of proof plays in chancy causation uh, cases. Um, so you are, I'm sure, familiar that the burden of proof is more likely than not. And it's sometimes framed as a 50%, 51% chance, right? Or greater than 50% chance um, that defendants act caused plaintiff's harm. Um, so far, so good, right? But what if I told you, well, this drug has a 30% in- increased incidence. People who take this drug have a 30% increased incidence of heart attacks and strokes. So... Um, and that, that example is based on Vioxx, which was a massive blockbuster drug and also resulted in a massive litigation. So in that case, I, I can't, um, if I think of the probability of cause, it creates a 30% incidence of heart attacks and strokes as being the same as the burden of proof, then my uh, plaintiff can never win. Even if, in fact, he's one of the 30% whose harm was caused by the, um, by the defendant. And the, Salt Levmore calls this the problem of recurring misses. That every time you're not going to be able to prove liability uh, because the, you can't meet the burden of proof if all you have is a, a probabilistic uh, showing and your probabilistic showing is under 50%. Right. And it took me a long time to understand, but I've come to the view that um, the question of the burden of proof is a question of quantum. Do I have enough proof in order to be convincing? Whereas probabilistic causation is the thing I'm proving. So I may know with a 95% certainty, say using social science metrics. That in fact, it is 30%. The chance of this person having gotten a stroke from Vioxx is 30%. Or whatever. The Vioxx, the better way of framing it is Vioxx creates a 30% increased incidence. And I can never tell you, because that's not how statistics works, right? I can never tell you any particular person whether their stroke was caused by some other cause or by this, by having taken this drug. Um but I know for a certainty or as near certainty as, as near as social science can tell me what the likelihood is. So I've very much met what we would ordinarily consider the burden of proof. It's just that the thing I'm proving is a probability. Um, and so once we understand that normative move that you just described, we can understand better that separation and we won't have the problem of recurring misses. Instead, we have, we say, well, okay, you've satisfactorily proved that this increased the risk by 30%. 
And now the question is, as a normative matter, is that the type of thing for which we want to impose liability in the system? And if it is, what should the scope of damages be in a case like that? And so there's lots of law and economics writing about, you know, proportional damages and things like that. So we can definitely talk about the remedial aspect of this. Um, But we can't get to that insight unless we understand the way in which um, the the existence of probabilistic or chancy cause um, means that we're making normative judgments. And once we we understand that, we can better understand that relationship with the burden of proof. And it really, in some ways, I mean, it it makes things more difficult because we have to make the policy judgment. But in in other ways, it makes it a lot more clear because we don't, we aren't confusing the quantum of evidence with the thing that's being proven. That's really clarifying. I mean, one, one, concern that I think some people might have. So, uh, you know, when you talk about normative concerns and normative questions uh, in this paper, you tend to think, it seems to me, about poly, what we call policy considerations, right? But as you know, there's a whole tradition in tort theory and in private law theory. So I'm thinking about um, people like Ernest Weinrib and to a lesser extent, but I still think that this is their view to Goldberg and Sipursky, who would say, you know, this type of policy considerations should not be part of the tort liability question. Um, and, and particularly in proximate causation here, I'm thinking about uh, Novi and Shapiro's recent paper on proximate cause. People tend to think, you know, this is kind of a realist and not, they don't mean this as a compliment. This is kind of a realist view about causation, where you think causation is just a question of policy judgment and, you know, we actually need to take the doctrine seriously. And I gather from what I've read in this paper that you think that's actually a mistaken view about the doctrine, not just a mistaken view about kind of the foundations of tort law. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that. Um, so I think that some people... Um, I think they fundamentally misunderstand the realists. Uh, And I kind of hate to say it because obviously they're very learned and they understand many things. Um, But I think people overread the realists somewhat and they, and and there's some tendency to um, make them into nihilists of some kind. Um, But I don't think that saying that tort law is based on the foundation of, you know, basically policy considerations. means that it's without any anchoring and is completely, you know, whatever the judge ate for breakfast kind of situation. Um, I think there's a series of well-known policy moves and arguments that are kind of within um, a scope of our understanding of the purposes of law. Um, Some arguments that that also relate to some understandings we have about what our traditions are. and a normative view that those traditions are good and therefore we should stick with them and the burden is on the person wanting to depart from the trans- tradition to tell us why they aren't good, right? Um, but all of those judgments are really normative judgments at bottom and I think we're actually pretty comfortable within a range of normative moves that are pretty familiar um, in making those judgments. Um, so I don't see it as... Um, it's quote unquote just policy, but rather that law requires 
justification that people who are subject to law are entitled to such justification and what incentives a rule is going to create, how um, it uh, the distributive justice implications of a rule, you know, all those kind of considerations um, are all um, part and parcel of how judges make decisions and how, um, I guess I would say at a higher level, how judges ought to make decisions. Um, so I sort of fight the premise. The paper tries to make an argument um, for a version of pragmatism that really looks at a legal concept in the way that it's operationalized um, by, uh, I guess, I don't know what you want to call it, like legal actors. And um, that what factual as well as proximate cause are, are ways in which we operationalize concepts of linkage or causation in order to decide who should be blamed and held accountable for what. Um, and that the, what I try to show in the paper is that if, if all you can show is that something has a tendency to lead to a result, and then it did lead to that result, right? You may still decide that you don't want to impose liability in that case for various reasons. The traditional being, oh, it will create too much litigation, right? Um, but you should recognize what you're doing. That is the, the pretense of but-for causation, in, because but-for causation is metaphysically false, it's just as much of a normative choice. And I would suggest much less well-grounded normative choice than saying, I'm going to accept a certain probability of an event occurring, and then I'm going to adjust the rest of the doctrine to fit the fact that all I know is a probability and my common sense doesn't allow me to make a judgment. So I just want to say one other thing, and you know, this may be not sufficiently related, but I was talking to a legal philosopher about this and the, you know, the people who take a really strong view of the metaphysics of causation, who, you know, I quite like their work, they might even say, you know, you can never know um, what, and an, like no outcome is deterministic. So say somebody jumps out a window, M maybe they don't fall all the way to the ground. Maybe they hover. That's what, you know, some imaginary metaphysicist would say. There's a tiny, tiny possibility that that could happen. And so what it, they asked me, you know, what does that mean for your theory? And I said, with most cases like the car accident or the person jumping out a window, whatever theory where you have a strong intuition, we've seen it happen so many times that we just can use common sense to easily resolve the problem within what we would consider to be a very viable range of results. But in these other complex cases where we're using epidemiologic evidence, we don't actually have those intuitions. And that's where the, the, the fact of statistical knowledge becomes a much bigger problem. Um, and, and I think once you recognize that, you realize, well, I just have to make a judgment about what I think is right using these other tools, um, such as, you know, it could be economic analysis of law or it could be, you know, deontological um, normative views about corrective justice or whatever, um, whatever people want to use. Um, my theory doesn't require them to adopt one of those. It just says you actually are already adopting one of these when you make these choices. So would it be fair to say that in your view, it's not that, 
in these types of cases, or, or you know, when we're deciding about proximate causation in tort law in general, uh, judges are kind of ignoring the law or kind of deciding on the basis of external considerations, but rather that the doctrine itself is telling us, um, you know, the traditional doctrine is telling the judge when you make this determination, you have to take into consideration the relevant normative concerns, whatever they might be, right? They might be, as you say, consequences for distributive justice. They might be concerns about uh, the uh, extension of liability in society. They might be concerns about efficiency, et cetera. So would it be fair to characterize your view about the doctrine as saying, you know, the, the, the law itself is telling the decision maker that they have to engage this question. So pretending that there are external questions, they're, they're kind of uh, policy, you know, mere policy questions is inconsistent with the actual shape of our traditions and doctrines. Would that be a good characterization? Well, I would say that's fair with respect to the proximate causal inquiry. Um, there is, but with respect to factual cause, or actual cause and probabilistic causation, we have an interesting problem, which is that since about 1920, uh, the law, the doctrine has adopted a view that you have to show counterfactual causation. And so there the doctrine doesn't give the answer that your description just now suggests. That is the doctrine doesn't say, hey, go and look for some good policy arguments here. But rather, the doctrine says, show me the the deterministic cause that was a cause of this. It doesn't have to be the cause, but a cause of this. Um, And and that rests on a fundamental metaphysical misunderstanding of how causation works. And there's a really interesting question of intellectual history, which is why in 1920, when we should really know better, does the restatement, the first restatement, adopt counterfactual approaches? Um, because when I when I looked back, the the genesis, part of the genesis of this project was work I do on modern mass torts, but part of it is a historical project I'm working on on the history of products liability law. And I was looking back at understandings of causation in the 1800s in American law. And what you see there is much more comfort with overlapping categories of causation that is not separating out factual and proximate cause, um, as well as a somewhat deeper understanding of um, the, or maybe maybe not deeper understanding, but more comfort with um, likelihoods and probabilities rather than certainties. Um, and there's a there's a really interesting question as to why in the 20th century we, the jurists would have turned to a deterministic view of causation that that's just anomalous with all other areas of science. Um, and I I have some theories, but I'm not quite sure what the right answer is there. Um, but so I would say the doctrine as it stands and as it has stood since about 1920 doesn't give us this possibility. But it, it ought to, and this move that we made towards counterfactual causation was a mistake. Okay, so now the obvious question is, how should we correct this mistake, at least with regards to the case, the type of case that you're considering in this project? 
Yeah, so I, I su am suggesting that we should, um, in probabilistic cases, so I think in these other cases, even though cause isn't really deterministic, it's good enough for our purposes, close enough. Um, but in the probability cases, I think that the only demand should be a showing of a tendency. Um, I also don't like the language of causal link because I think it creates an expectation of determinism that doesn't exist. But I think that the threshold should be you have to show a tendency. And then the question for the policy and substantive law is, is the tendency that this plaintiff has shown enough to give rise to liability from this defendant? And then if it is enough, we have to ask what should the quantum of damages, what's the appropriate quantum of damages in this in this type of case? Um, but I would suggest that step one is really, um, is this does this have a tendency to cause this outcome? Does E have a tendency to cause O um, in order to make that determination? And that's it. It's super simple text. Great. Um, now, now I, I want to move on to two other topics that I wanted to ask you about. So one is um, this, this idea that you already mentioned, which is that you call your approach to causation pragmatic. And you already hinted a bit at this, but I wanted to ask you a bit more to, to, to talk about this idea of pragmatism, about legal concepts. What do you mean by that? Why do you think that approach kind of makes sense in this, whether it's in this context or in legal reasoning in general? This is a bit tough because pragmatism is such a contested concept. Um, And I think there's a there's so many views of what pragmatism is that I think it can cause confusion rather than illumination sometimes. Um, and what I mean here by pragmatism or the way I think about it is that concepts are deployed for uses. Um, so I, I think it's hard in law. It may be possible in other areas, but I think in law it's hard to come up with a concept divorced from the context in which it's used. And so I understand pragmatism to be a way of thinking about legal concepts within the context in which they're deployed and to understand them uh, in that way. Uh, and so once, and I think once you do that, that, that is that you're not trying to figure out what is the platonic ideal of this concept, but rather the parameters of the concept are determined by the uses to which the concept is being put. Um, and, and then you need something else outside of that idea in order to evaluate those uses. Um, so I don't think that pragmatism kind of obviates, um, which I think some people do, but I don't think it obviates then the need for normative analysis or normative views. But this is then married in my own mind And that's not in the paper, but now I'm revealing to you my philosophy of law, um, such as it is, you know, um, it's married in my own mind to a, a pluralistic view of what law is trying to do. That is, I'm, I'm very skeptical of these um, totalizing theories of law and, and in particular totalizing theories of tort law. Um, and, and I don't know really much about other areas of private law, or at least as much as I should. 
but but it strikes me that they don't really work when it comes to tort law. Um, because tort law is, tr- is a human institution that's trying to do a lot of different things. And uh, so it doesn't have just one core. And I think once we understand that tort law is made up of concepts that work in the context in which they're used to achieve different purposes, and that then that the law itself, unfortunately, or fortunately, has multiple purposes that sometimes conflict, but don't always conflict, and that it's rather imperfect, it gives you a much better understanding, not not only of what it is, but of how to critique it. That is, um, I think the better way to approach critiquing it is rather than saying, this is my ideal and here's the way in which you fall short law of my ideal of what you ought to be, is to say, I have these substantive ideals of what we're trying to achieve. And they, and to the extent that they don't conflict, we should try to achieve all of them. How are we falling short? of achieving them when they conflict, what normative tools do I have in order to help me make choices amongst the um, policies um, or principles that I'm trying to realize? Yeah, I don't know um, if that's completely incoherent or if it makes sense, but no, I mean, it makes total sense to me. I'm very sympathetic to this type of view about private law and about legal institutions in general. Um and so, so would would it be a reasonable inference from your? I mean, this, is, this is taking you a bit away from the paper, so you can feel free to pass and say uh, you don't want to talk about this. But but um, w- would it be a, a reasonable inference from what you've said that you think that we we can also prescribe or or have normative disagreements about? what the concepts should be like, because if you think that concepts are like these tools, that they're like ladders that allow us to reach certain outcomes or certain things that they play certain functions in social practices, that if we believe they're no longer playing the role that they should be playing or, or that we come to the conclusion that for some normative concern that we hadn't paid attention to, we should uh, reorient the concept in a different way uh, to would that be uh, reasonable in your view? Would it be legitimate to kind of say, I don't know, you know, causation is supposed to play this role of telling us when we can connect an outcome to a harm, but actually it's not working. We should replace the concept, the operative concept we have of causation with this different account because that will help us achieve the goals that are relevant to causation in a better way. Is that a view that you are attracted to? Is that kind of what you're trying to do in this paper? Like uh, an argument about conceptual change or about, you could say, conceptual engineering? In general, I'm, I, I like what you said. I, I guess I would say that it's not exactly what I see myself doing here. And this is where I think I may be self-contradictory, or at least you know you could accuse me of that, which is I really think that as a matter of fundamental concept that is irreducible and we can't really fight over, that probabilistic causation or chancy cause is a thing. It exists. And if and failure to recognize it just results in you trying to move things around. So either failure to recognize it results in doing injustice um, in a way that you don't recognize, or it what I show in the paper is it leads us or it leads the courts to do all kinds of silly things that don't make sense at all 
because they're trying to achieve justice in a context where the legal concept doesn't fit the world. Um, and, and that's really a claim, I think, about the f- irreducible foundation of things or fundamentals or Im- immutable con- conceptualizations or something like that, right? It's not really a claim about malleability. Um, and, and so um, I'm trying to translate that into what you were just saying. Um, so I think that there is that piece of it, that sort of fundamental metaphysical piece and then what my view is, once we recognize that, then there's a question of what to do with it. So one thing we could do with it is just ignore it and say, well, if you have chancy cause, you just don't get money and that's too bad for you, right? Harm lies where it falls. Another thing we could say is, oh, we really need to reorient our definition to fit what we know about you know, modern physics. Um, and that seems to me you know, both of those are policy choices in the end. Um, but there, I, I do believe that some things are facts on the ground. They're real. They can't be, you can't dance around them, right? Um, but other things are uh, edifices that we've created. Maybe we created them under the reign of Henry VIII or whatever, um, or Henry VI, I think is the quote from Holmes. Um, but uh, but they are human creations, and therefore they're always ripe for us to reconsider. Um, so, for example, in I'll just give you a sort of workaday example. There's a debate over how to define proximate causation, and w- one old rule that you might have heard of is this um, single jump rule, and it comes from a case where a spark flies off a train and it hits a hay bale, and then it hits um, somebody's barn. And the, the court says, well, the proximate cause is the spark to the hay bale, but not the hay bale to the barn. The one leap rule will govern here. And so you could look at that and say, well, that just doesn't seem like a good idea for a whole host of reasons. And um, uh, it has nothing to do with kind of the quote unquote, truth of the matter, like how fire moves, right? Or immutable laws of physics. It just has to do with at what, where, what do we think is foreseeable? Where do we want to draw the line for a bunch of different normative reasons? Um, so I guess I would make that distinction and otherwise sign on to what you said. Great. So uh, I understand you're saying in the case of causation, there's kind of this irreducible fact of the matter about causation. Uh, but then there's this kind of concept of causation, you could call it causation asterisk or legal causation, how the law treats causation. And that might perfectly be at odds and kind of ignore the fact of the matter about causation and that might lead us into problems. Another concept you could say they're much more artificial in a way. They don't have a cognate, natural or technical concept. And in those cases, there's more flexibility and more space for re-engineering the concepts. Is that, is that your view? Yes, that's my view. Okay, excellent. That's very eloquently said. Great, great. Thank you. <laughs> and n- now I, I, you know, I want to turn to the last question, which is kind of an external question about the paper. So you've written a lot about litigation, about remedies, about juries, about um, the role of uh, litigation in society and in upholding democratic values. 
So I have a question about the history of this paper. How did you come to think about these complicated metaphysical questions about causation? What, what is the path that led you down this specific uh, rabbit hole? So um, I had been for a long time. So I started out as a scholar of actually class actions and and wrote quite a number of, I would describe as more slightly more technical papers about procedural rules and how they interact. Um, and then I, uh, p part of my work took me to both think about the litigation system more generally, that is take a political theory kind of approach to thinking about litigation as part of our society, but then also focus particularly on the problem of mass torts. Um, and once you look at mass torts, these massive cases you know, they can be as many as 100,000 or more um, uh, individuals filing lawsuits. A lot of them have to do with products that injure people where causation is chancy or probabilistic. And I was so dissatisfied with the way we deal with them. And I had this insight that, oh, you know, the reason that we settle them in the way that these massive cases in the way that we do is because we actually don't have a way to try them because they don't fit our standard causation narrative. So we end up with, um, you know, like let's say you did, you know, sample trials in a case where you have a 30% increased incidence of the bad outcome from this drug, you're going to get outcomes all over the map. Um, and it really is very unhelpful in deciding whether liability should lie and, and how much. Um, but it's because our whole way of conceiving of it, of understanding it, is um, based on this mistaken premise I came to realize of deterministic causation. And so then I needed to look more into what is causation and how do different um, areas in the academy, especially I was interested in philosophers, understand this. So I, I also read a lot of... Um, epidemiologic work? How do epidemiologists understand causation? Because it's their evidence that's often being introduced in these cases. So it really is, you might describe it as a bottom-up kind of project where I had this problem and I saw the courts were, um, they seem to have a lot of difficulty dealing with it. And I wanted to understand the problem better and see if there's a better way of thinking about it than the way we currently do. And that's when I really realized, oh, you know, it's this, it's, it's fundamentally a problem of our counterfactuals valid, you know, that's like at the bottom of the whole thing. And it was really helpful to be able to delve into that and, and really understand it for my broader thinking about this really significant social problem, which is the mass torts. Great. That's, that's a really interesting path. Um, you know, from uh, class actions to mastered litigation to causation. Um, Alexandra, I wanted to thank you again for accepting my invitation. This has been great. Um, and I also want to uh, encourage our listeners to take a look at uh, Alexandra's uh, book and her recent work. It's really fascinating. It offers a great um, account of the realities of litigation, how they interact with uh, legal doctrine. So, Alexandra, thank you so much for our conversation. Thanks for having me. This was fantastic. <laughs>